week on the No More Late Fees podcast, Jackie and I are joined by producer, casting director, teacher, and director, including one of our favorite movies, 200 Cigarettes, Risa Bremen Garcia. Risa's extensive resume spans four decades across stage, film, and television. So we're very excited that she agreed to come on our little show and join us. Welcome, Risa. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so for much. Me. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. So, like we said, 200 Cigarettes is one of our favorite movies. We kind of in high school bonded over going to Blockbuster and renting the indie films that didn't get much exposure um, through marketing. And so we found it and we just absolutely adore it. Um, And I told Danielle on this most recent rewatch, since we've been doing kind of this podcast, which has almost been like a social experiment for us, just revisiting movies, seeing how they translate into today's social climate within a few minutes I I immediately had the thought this was written by a woman and it was directed by a woman it just yes we why what 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 made you think that we have been so in tune to previous movies we had done where you could very much tell that it was from a lens of a man writing a woman's character yeah. Where this, the the relationships the women had, how they react to situations with men, it felt like a very female energy had written this part because it, the movie understood how women talk to each other and how they relate to one another and how they relate to men. And so I was very happy cool. that yeah. we yeah. cherished this movie so much and then from it to be completely from the lens of, of uh, a f- female director and writer. It was just, it was really exciting for me to discover that. How did you get involved with the 200 Cigarettes Project? It's a bit of a story and and an interesting one. And I want to also add in terms of perspective or point of view or uh, or lens that another very significant participant in this was our producer, Betsy Beers, who now runs Grey's Anatomy. She (laughs) she works, she's partnered with Shonda, yeah. And and so that was also, so, so she and I together really navigated that probably less consciously than we would have done so now that there is actually attention being paid to more female point of view or female gaze. So I got involved with this. I was working for several, this is the completely opposite kind of work, but I was doing working for several years with Oliver Stone wow. and not a very female gaze or point of view. <laughs> Although I have to say and take credit for and fought for a woman's point of view in as many of those films as I could and sometimes succeeded and sometimes didn't. And not because he wasn't open to it. He actually really wanted to hear from me in terms of the writing when we were working on several films, but there just wasn't space for it. And the initial, the main characters were always men and, and the, and the whole point of view was very male, but he had somebody working in his company at, at a certain point named Janet Yang, who's a wonderful producer. And she brought it to my attention before it ended up with Dogstar, which was Mike Newell's company, where Betsy, which Betsy ran. So I was really interested in the project. Then when I read it, I thought, oh my God, this is my life. I had that party in 1981 in my loft in New York, and I totally got it. And I loved, I saw it, I, I felt it, I saw it, it made sense to me. And I got involved with these people, and I don't know really what happened But I remember I was working in Santa Monica and I went to their office for a meeting 
and uh, super excited. They were foreign investors. And I showed up at this office building, went up the elevator, went to the office and nobody was there. And I could look through the glass and there were just, there was no furniture and there were a bunch of phones on the floor and the, they had evaporated, literally evaporated. Oh my um, goodness. They had like packed up and left town. <laughs> and I don't know where they went or who they were. And I got hold of the writers, Shauna Larson's agent. And I, we, you know, and, and she just said, yeah, I don't know what happened. She kind of blew me off, honestly. And, uh, and said that other people were interested and, you know, too bad for you. And it, it oh. wasn't done arrogantly. She just was, she was trying to find a home for this project. And I <laughs> certainly by myself without financing was not it. So I was really disappointed, but I kept on her. And to this day, she will say like, I was, I was like a dog with a bone and then tracked it to Dogstar, which is what, as I mentioned, Mike Knowles company. And at that time, Mike was going to direct it, but then Four Weddings and a Funeral happened and he didn't need to direct it. And it was, <laughs> he had done that movie yes. and, you know, and so they were looking for um, a woman, but they were also looking for somebody with some clout and I didn't have any. And so they interviewed a bunch of people and I just kept pursuing it and kept saying, you know, I want to do this. I'm here. If everybody else falls through, please let me know and got some people to make phone calls for me. And they did, they came back to me finally and said, okay, let's interview you. They knew I could bring casting to the table. They knew I was passionate about it. They knew I understood it and they interviewed me and, you know, and I met with Mike and they said, yeah, let's do it. We tried to partner with some people and I put a whole cast together. I don't remember what year it was, but a couple years before we, <clears throat> we actually made it and we did, that didn't happen that, that round. And then Betsy was close to people at MTV. I knew people at MTV because my husband had worked there from the very inception of MTV. And, and just based on all of that, MTV got involved and it was so much an MTV movie. And then there, they were housed at Paramount and Lakeshore came on board, also housed at Paramount. A lot of producers, like a lot <laughs> of producers and also a lot of, shall we say, like you know, voices in all of this. And so long story, but that's how it happened. And then Sherry Lansing, who was the head of Paramount at the time said, you know, Reese is great, but she should go to film school and then come back and we'll think about making it then. And I had just had a conversation with Ben Stiller who said, you should do a director's for them and just show them you can do it. Like show it to them, don't tell them, just show it to them. So I, I went back and, and we put that together. But one of the things that I did at his recommendation, which was great, is I got, I don't know how I, I managed this, but I got Dogstar and MTV to say that if they didn't want me, the movie would not happen. So they got behind me. Wow, you know? that's amazing. And we made, we shot two, two scenes from the film and it was great. You know, I, I love them in some ways, in some versions, I, there, there's some things in there that I like better than what we shot in the movie. But let me think, I'm trying to remember who was in that. Janine Garofalo and Lisa Kudrow did The Women in the Loft as a favor to me. I did that one scene in the loft. And then I did the Cindy scene on the street with Steve Zahn and Jenna Elfman. Oh my God. Also who did this as a favorite to me. Oh and so, wow. yeah, and that was great. And the scenes were great and they loved it. And so based on that, they made the movie and the only condition was they, they needed three names for the poster. Gotcha. Right? That's what they said. Three, And then the rest of it, do what you want. So 
I think those ended up being, I don't even remember because Christina Ricci sort of, I think, mattered at that time. Definitely Ben, right? Ben, well, he wasn't, he was didn't, he had wasn't nothing. Wasn't big yet? No, no. I mean, Ben was this guy who I met who was telling me about some movie he was going to do that he wrote. <laughs> I <laughs> love that. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> I read the script and I thought, oh, wow, this is a good script, like Goodwill Hunting. And so, but it sounded kind of silly. I mean, not silly, but the whole thing didn't sound very real. But so he really wasn't anybody at that time. I mean, very quickly, you know, he was winning his Oscar when we uh well i know martha plimpton had longevity at yeah. that point yeah, she did but she auditioned like we couldn't find monica you know and uh, there was a couple people there were a couple of people we were interested in and and to a couple of the producers credits they were like it's just not we're not there yet and i remember really racking my brain and then remembering like i don't know how i was in new york with betsy i think we were location scouting and and martha uh, oh I was talking to somebody about Martha just in a, as a, cause I've known Martha since she was a kid. And suddenly I thought, oh my God, like she could do Monica, not the way I had envisioned it, but she had the, you know, the guts and the emotional life and, and the humor. And so she came in an audition and I remember I was so excited about her audition. We were in Soho at the, L, the New York casting director's loft. I was so excited about her audition that I went and bought a really expensive pair of shoes. <laughs> I, uh, I was so excited about Martha and I knew that everybody would love her and so yeah but she wasn't she wasn't the name on the poster I think it was uh, uh, Courtney definitely was yes. somebody yes that mattered to Paramount and then also I think because Sherry Lansing who was running Paramount was friends with Goldie Hawn she was excited about Kate Hudson so she felt so that was like a little bit of Hollywood royalty so right. I don't, interestingly and maybe it was Christina but I, it, it's so interesting to think back and not even know who those people were for the poster because people <laughs> didn't matter at that time. And then they all started happening. Yes. Yeah. So that think, was an interesting thing. Do you think it could have been Paul Rudd because he just had come off of like Clueless at that time? Like it was after? No, it was not Paul Rudd. Oh. She had, nobody had heard of Paul Rudd. Really? Oh my yeah, goodness. Yeah. It, that is matter. kind of weird to think about yeah. how many superstars yeah. you had in that movie as now they're superstars yeah but yeah yeah and they were all you know just a bunch of actors and paul didn't want to do the movie at all really? like he said no to me 25 times and <laughs> i think to this day he would be like mad at me for making him do it i begged him to do it and i and i gave up on him doing it because i really felt in my bones that he was the guy until courtney got involved and then she was she read with some actors some very well-known actors there was not a lot of chemistry with them those people and she looked at the list and she said we have to cast Paul Rudd she was obsessed and so as we uh, all are now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good yes the sexiest man in the world or whatever yes <laughs> so we saw that recently 200 cigarettes was re-released on dvd and soon to be blu-ray was there a reasoning why it kind of went into the vault for I wish I knew I, I think because people didn't realize its fan base and that, that it has a growing fan base. Mm -hmm. um, I still don't know. I've been talking to a couple people at Paramount. Uh, a friend of mine helped facilitate that. Um, but I just don't think they realize what they had, you know? Yeah. I know that in terms of streaming, there are probably music rights issues. Mm -hmm. yeah. I can't imagine that any of those musicians would have an issue with it. But I don't know if this, 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 this 
version of the of paramount executives i don't know if they understand what they have in front of them and since i used to know all these people at paramount really well and i don't now years later um all i'm getting is we don't know so like you know it's a tricky it's tricky because they could make money off it and the music rights it was an easier thing because mtv saw the potential here in creating this album and um, the first person we went to was Elvis Costello because he was in the film. So what MTV had said to me is, let's go get, let's get some, a cameo. Who do you want? And I said, Elvis Costello. And they were like, and with, and then he read the script and he said, yes. And then once he was in the movie and a part of it, he gave us his music for a decent price. And once he had given us the music for that, other people like Blondie and other, other bands and musicians jumped on. So that, but I think that maybe I, I mean it's it may be a music rights issue as to why it's not streaming. But yes, the Blu-ray is great, and I've been and they sent me a whole bunch of DVDs, and they said they're putting them out in the world, and and that's great. And I'll make about a one cent per DVD uh, that gets <laughs> sold, but at least it's something. Well, we bought ours on Amazon yep. the other day. Can't really see it. There you go. <laughs> and and we to buy it without spending a lot of money. Yeah, it was uh, twenty bucks. Okay. okay. Yeah, because Jackie had it on DVD for a mm-hmm. little bit, and then in a move, lost it, so she right. was devastated. And then we tried oh. to look on like in, on eBay; they were selling for like two hundred dollars. I know. I saw that. That's nuts. And so then I was on TikTok because we had done two hundred cigarettes as an yeah. episode, and I saw other people were talking about that it was finally on Amazon, and so I ran and got Jackie and I a copy, and then. On TikTok, we made a video just talking Ooh. about it. We just got so many people coming to our TikTok who were like, Isn't I love this movie. So um, really exciting for that. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> it's great. People should see it. I mean, it's fun, you know? It's such a fun movie. And it's it's one of those movies like every New Year's Eve, you know what you're going to do. You're going to be watching 200 <laughs> Cigarettes and like in your nostalgia bubble as you ring in the new year like that is just our tradition is to to rewatch it and revisit that yeah no that's great <laughs> that's great I love that I love that so much cool yeah for our listeners if you didn't know Risa has cast some of the most memorable movies past few years she's not just a director when I looked at the list of movies that you helped cast, I was blown away. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, we honestly, some of our favorite movies. So just to give you guys an idea, Something Wild, The Joy Luck Club, True Romance, Fatal Attraction, JFK, Sneakers, The Doors, Dead Presidents, Twister, and one of my ultimate fa- favorites, Benny and June. I mean, mm-hmm. that one is so heartwarming. And mm-hmm. when we ask people which movies we should do on the podcast, that one has come up a few times. Actually. Really? Yeah. So there are a lot of Benny and June fans. <laughs> it's just such it's a, a great movie. It's a lovely movie. It is. Yeah. No, that's great. That It's a great. Yeah. Yeah. That was a nice movie. That We cast that only in a few weeks, I think. Jeremiah Chechek was the director. And Aiden... Quinn stepped in at the last minute, I think. Nothing. Somebody else was cast. I don't remember what that story was, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a lovely movie. When you go into casting, have you ever had those moments where you're just like, this is the person, they have that spark, they have what we're looking for in any of your movies, just anything memorable about um, being in the casting seat? 
something that in terms of finding a role and then I, yeah, sometimes like I'll definitely have a a moment of this is it. And then sometimes you have to fight for that. You know, Mm -hmm. let me think. I mean, I know in 200 cigarettes that happened a bunch, like with the Cindy role. So Mm -hmm. I went back to Jenna Elfman to do the part because she had done such a beautiful job in the, my test and her reps at the time said, oh, no, no, she's way too fancy. She's not going to do your little movie. Oh. And I was devastated. And I learned, like, you cannot be devastated by, a, you know, a casting thing. There was always another actor. And then I had agreed to meet Kate Hudson as a, you know, like a general, what we call generals, just to whatever. And she came in and sat down in my office. And I remember this really clearly. She just walked in through the door. and She tripped. she didn't fall down she just sort of had one of those little trips and then I thought that's it there's Cindy and I hadn't even meeting her for that so as I was talking to her and I realized she didn't have a lot of experience but again she comes from you know she grew up around actors anyway she uh she was it you know and I just looked at her and I thought that's it there's no question I don't know if she doesn't have to read she is Cindy and and she was so that for, for that you know that happened for that movie but I remember one person that comes to mind is Sandy Bullock in in uh, Speed you know and we went through a lot of girls for that movie saw a lot of act- actresses and read a few people with Keanu <clears throat> and they had incredible chemistry and there were some obstacles at the the studio, but her people didn't really want her to do it because on the page, the movie did not look like it. I mean, it was it was kind of like we thought we all thought we were making a B movie and it would go nowhere, maybe straight to video at the time. Remember the concept? You guys know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? There was no like doing it, you know, for 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 TV was a good thing. And so they said no. So everybody was saying no. But in my heart of hearts and in my in my absolute casting spidey sense, I knew that Sandy had to play that part. And oh I had cast gosh. her in a movie called The Vanishing in this very little, in this little part, which really, and I remember her audition for that. And I just was absolutely sure she was it. So sometimes once in a while, you do know that, you know, sometimes it's hard and you don't know, or sometimes you do know when the people say no, and you just keep looking and, you know, it's a very grueling process. I don't think people really understand. Yeah how grueling it is. Sometimes people think is, oh, you know, you think of an actor, you call them up, they do it, everybody's happy, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen, especially these days that everybody can see auditions, you know, on, on online, when it used to be in the olden days, they couldn't. And then also, <laughs> you know, there has to be that right synergy of actor, an actor wanting to do it, an actor being available to do it, and so forth. So well, yeah. we thank you because the chemistry in Speed was amazing. Yeah, yeah. they were yeah. great together. Yeah. And they were great together in the office, rolling around on the floor. You know, there was like, it was, there was, it was a no-brainer. We all knew that. The producer, Jan Debont, the director, Mark Gordon, the producer, and, and, and me, we were just, I was sitting there with my vid, huge video camera, and we all knew that was it, you know. But then we had some obstacles along the way that we clearly overcame. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What has been one of the hardest roles to cast? Ever? Ever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. One of the hardest roles to cast. Okay, good question. One thing that comes to mind really quickly is Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. That was tough. That was really tough. That went on for a month for many reasons. And, you know, as you can see, it sort of became this iconic character. Yes. By an extraordinary actor. 
but that was really hard because like you had to check so many boxes in terms of what we're looking for. And to Adrian's credit, Adrian Line, who was the director, we had Michael Douglas, so it wasn't like Paramount needed, it was at Paramount as well, that like they needed, you know, a big fancy actor, actress, but it was hard to find somebody who brought everything to it, you know, the strength, the intelligence, the sexuality, the danger, the emotional desperation, all of that. And it was hard to find that. And we auditioned so many women in LA and New York. And it was before self-tapes. So, you know, it wasn't like you could get self-tapes in from all over the world. Mm -hmm. We didn't really think of as many British actors as we one thinks of these days. And some women said no, because again, on the page, it sort of read a bit like a B-movie and nobody knew it was a B-thriller and nobody knew that it was going to become this thing. So a lot of women said no. And then Glenn Close showed interest and the producer, producers and and director were a little hesitant because she had played character roles before. And in their mm -hmm. mind, they saw a woman who was more overtly sexual, probably, and said, oh, no, she's not really right. But when Glenn Close, even at that time, says, I'm interested, my partner Billy and I said, we need to pay attention to this. If mm -hmm. an actress is that interested, just take a meeting with her, see what she has to say. And they finally agreed to meet with her. She had a very powerful agent at the time. And I remember walking them down 57th Street in New York to this hotel and walking in the door and she was coming in the other door. The hotel had a door on 56th Street and on 57th Street and it had, I thought it was skylight or whatever, but she walked in and the light hit her in a really interesting way and she dressed up a little bit for it in a certain way. And I remember them seeing her and they, they sort of took our breath away. We didn't, Billy and I didn't stay at the meeting, but we walked them, the, one of the producers and the director into the building and talking to them the whole way of why they should take her seriously. <laughs> and she came in and she was wearing this white suit and this light hit her. And I knew at that moment, like, we have to take this person seriously. And then she, you know, they met her, they actually were quite taken with her and excited. And then she went through hours and hours of auditions with Michael Douglas. She really had to work hard. And then what Adrian said, which I loved was, I can make any woman be as beautiful as she's meant to be, but I can't teach a beautiful woman to be an extraordinary actress. And so, Absolutely. you know, it wasn't that they had to do a ton to Glenn, no, but the, it's... that, you know, had to be played with in terms of her hair and makeup and style and, you know, her, her the way she carried herself in order to embody this character, which was part of her work because she's a character actress and this, it was a character. But that was a hard one, man. That took months and months and months. And when I think of some of the women who I won't say now who we were considering, I'm like, oh my God, that would have been a, a very different movie, <laughs> a ch really challenging movie. So, I mean, so, and, and again, it's always harder and more involved than, than one thinks. Mm -hmm. I think these days where you can see the world, you know, where people can send in tapes from all over the world, it gets even harder because what producers and directors will often say is, we want to see everybody. Yeah. And then they'll ask for people or they'll say, what about, you know, people in this country or that country? Or, and suddenly like the work is, the workload is so huge because there's always somebody else in, in their minds rather than who's in front of you. But so the process is, is often very um, extensive. But in any case, that's one that comes to mind immediately, I think. So throughout your career, do you have a favorite body of work or a project that you're most proud of? I know it's kind of like Sophie's <laughs> Choice. They're all your babies. <laughs> well, for different reasons. I mean, 200 Cigarettes is definitely 
you know, a favorite. I have to say, I love that it's finding new audiences of young women, mostly women, I think. You know, we had a hard time identifying what the audience was for the movie at the time, you know, and when we first screened it, the execs at Paramount said, oh, because of Chappelle, I think, they said, oh, this is car wash. And we were like, what? <laughs> and then we did some test screenings and those test screenings are dangerous, man. They are like, you know, those audiences are so erratic. And we, we tested it at some point in West Hollywood. We had a lot of young gay men come and they said, let's cater to a young gay male audience, you know? And I was like, again, what? So we're getting car washed and we're, you know, what is this thing? We didn't know what it was. And we went back and shot additional scenes that weren't in the script. And Chappelle wasn't, you know, he was that taxi driver was not in the script. That was something we put in later and improvised it all and like went back and shot the stuff with Janine and the stuff with, with Kate uh, Hudson on the street. Like all that was done months and months later to just add stuff in and like help find some glue because there wasn't a lot of through line. But, but I, anyway, I, I digress. I love that. I, I, you know, it's, I still, it's, you know, sort of my baby. That's the thing that I, you know, it was a film that I'm really attached to. I, I, interestingly, my work on, on all of Oliver's movies, because I was able to bring a really strong point of view to the table and it was respected. And yeah. people talk about him as being difficult and challenging. And yes, in some ways he had, he was, but he was collaborative. He always listened to what I had to say, or he heard what I had to say. He didn't always listen, <laughs> but he was a collaborator with, as a department head, you know, for the work that I did with Billy Hopkins, my casting partner at the time, he always listened to us. He always, he always heard us. And so it always felt like we were a part of, we had something to say. And then when I can look at those films as a casting director and say, you know, my point of view is, is in that movie and it's not ego. It's just, you want to be able to contribute creatively to a film or, a, or, a, or a show and not be just a facilitator or, you know, a secretary or someone who hands in a bunch of lists. You want to actually be able to do your work and offer your talent and your vision and your point of view to it. So in his films, I see that. And the time as challenging as those films were, because some of them had huge, huge landscapes of, of characters, they, they were, I look at that body of work in that time as real, something I'm proud of, you know, and that I can say, yeah, that was really, really good work. And then I also think my work in the theater as a director, for me, especially in the 80s, early 90s in New York and a little bit in LA when I was doing theater in the early 90s, mid 90s, is like that work to me was probably the, my most significant and my happiest and my best. Yeah. So that's what comes to mind. I just feel like just listening to some of the stories that you're, you've, you've mentioned, but also like reading certain things, I feel like there's such a disconnect with the studio heads and their perception of reality with the audiences that they're trying to produce mm. these projects for. I, how, do you feel like that's what's happening? Like there's just a major disconnect. Be, just the way know. that they're, even with female driven movies, how they constantly yeah. are saying to us, oh, there's no audience for that. Or for, you know, movies of people of color, there's no audience, even though these movies keep on outpacing their their standards or their thought processes. It's kind of crazy. 
Yeah, you know, it's hard to say, and I don't know what the film business is these days, you know, because who's going to the movies and, and people are making movies for Netflix because Netflix is throwing millions of dollars at them when it, and then that becomes the platform, you know, and that and it's not special. You need to turn mm -hmm. on Netflix and you see it's hard to know, like, what am I supposed to be watching here or what do I even want to watch? Because so much of the films that are there just seem like crazy garbage or you know, and so even now, like I'm, you know, part of the Academy and voting on films and watching all these films, it's like, well, that one's on Netflix and that one's on Hulu and that one's on Prime and you can watch all these films, you know, anywhere and they just, they don't, they're not special anymore. So it feels like everyone's just making things to throw against the wall and see if they stick, mm -hmm. you know, and so it's not, it's not exclusive anymore. It's not special and I don't even know what, how people are thinking about their audience other than ultimately they'll watch it on TV. They'll watch it on a streaming service. They'll watch it on Netflix. And then the audience gets split. So I don't think there's any sense of what's possible. There always was somewhat of a disconnect. It's hard to say. I'm honestly not in that part of the world right now. Like I've been in television for a really long time. And so I haven't made, worked on a movie in a while. And so I don't really know how, how studio heads are thinking, but I know that it's all about the sales. Like what can we sell right. to a streaming service and make the most amount of money? And then so you really, the people who are dictating the film industry are those streaming services now. Yeah. Much more than the, the studios that used to release them. I think television is definitely outpacing from a creativity standpoint. Oh, totally. Um, yeah than movies it is the golden age of television or the second golden age and i think that's <laughs> i think that's great only in that there's amazing television being made and there are great roles for women on television much more so than in films you know yeah. when you actually look at the nominees that are going to happen for feature films not that that you know dictates in film because there's so much amazing film being made on a smaller scale but you kind of look at those names and you're like really are we really talking about those women? Yeah. You know, but when you look at television and you see the roles that, and, and I think women in television, women have always had more dominance in television, certainly as producers and writers. And so now women as producers, writers, creators, showrunners, actors are, are having, you know, in the last 10 years and emerging are finding voices in ways that they never ever had in film, which I think is exciting. It's exciting for us watching, so can't even yeah, imagine. So. Obviously you have a ton of roles that you've been behind the scenes. Have you ever wanted to be in front of the camera? God, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, God, no, 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 no. Never, <laughs> ever, ever. You know, I, I gave up that dream when I was at sleepaway camp, when I was a little <laughs> kid and I did not get cast in any speaking part in the pajama game. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> And the girl who got it was the most popular girl in my bunk, in my group. And I just felt, and I knew her fairly well, and I know her now, and it's kind of funny. But but I, I just was like, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I felt so bad. I was in the chorus. I don't know. I was, I'm trying to figure out how old I was. I was probably 10 or 11, maybe 11. And I remember... What, so sitting there in the, we, all, the whole chorus was sitting there in the auditorium 
and watching some rehearsals, waiting for us to go up and sing our, you know, chorus songs. And I was watching the director, who was a woman who was like the head of the drama program. And it was not a drama camp. It was just a regular, you know, sleepaway camp. Because I, I grew up in Montreal, so it was like in the, the Laurentian Mountains north of Montreal. And I watched her and I thought, I like what she's doing. <laughs> Oh, wow. Really cool. So I followed her afterwards and I said to her, is there any way that I could help you out? And she said, no, I don't need any help. I said, no, no, but I, I, I can help you. I can like take notes for you. I can carry your script. I can, you know, get you drinks or whatever. Um, bug juice, we called it at the time. <laughs> she said, and I was so persistent that she said, yeah, okay, fine, fine, fine. And that's what I did. I was her assistant at camp on the pajama game. And I actually, I don't, I think I was still in the chorus, but I didn't really take it that seriously. But at that point, I knew that I wanted to do that and not that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And from then on, it was like really clear to me. I just thought it just doesn't interest me. And I love actors, you know, but my work with actors is to me more exciting than it would ever be to be one. I mean, I've read with actors in auditions. You know, I've sat and read with actors in table reads. I've, I've been opposite famous actors doing that. But it's all in the... Because I also think that there's a bigger picture that's mm-hmm. more exciting to me than just one point of view. And seeing that bigger picture is huge because I, I really developed that in the theater. You know, yeah. and I moved into film later. And in some ways, I wish I had gotten more savvy and sophisticated about visual storytelling because <laughs> it was something that came to me after I was a theater director. Oh, the story's God. always been important to me in character and relationship, but the the whole concept of visual storytelling is something that even decades later, I'm still learning. That, I mean, just to think that you figured out your passion so early on I, I, I'm amazed by that because I think so many of us struggle trying to figure out where we want to go, what, what our passions are. So that's really great. And I think one of the other things that I'm admiring as I'm hearing you speak is everything that you want, you have gone after with intention and you haven't let anything really stand in your way. And I think so many of us, I mean, so, I mean, I'm sure you've had moments, but it seems like some of the bigger projects you've really, you've, you've tried, you've gone after it, which I think some of us get in our head and get a little stuck. Which Um, is my, you know, which, which is, it's an interesting thing. And I talk to filmmakers and young actors and, and directors all the time. And I think for now, you know, there were a lot of obstacles to being a woman director. Even when I tried to get into television, I've done, I've directed in television, but there came a point where if I, if I were where I was 20 years ago now, I would have much more opportunity because it was really, it was tricky. It was like people didn't feel obliged to cast, you know, hire women directors. Now it's sort of people have to check the box of whether they want to or not, but at least they're doing it, you know, and also, you know, women of color and it's, it's a whole other world than it was for me. And so I hit a lot of roadblocks and it wasn't about giving up. Sometimes you just hit a point where it's like, there's only so much I can do, you know, and I, in many ways I would have done my career somewhat differently, but I, I, you can't really go back and in, in any regret or Monday morning quarterback your career, you know, all I can do is pay it forward with to, uh, uh, <clears throat> to young women who are, who, who want to do that. And just to say to anybody, you guys included, you know, if there's something you want to do and feel compelled to do, then it's on you to do it. 
Nobody is necessarily going to like open the door for you without you standing in front of it and banging on it and saying, right. let me in. Then <laughs> <laughs> after a while, they may listen to you, but, but you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to, to get up there and get in the ring and fight or knock on that door or, or just follow the thing that is in your heart that you feel like you have to do because you love it, because you see it, because you have to do it. You know, you wake up in the morning and, and I'll tell you what's interesting is like, <clears throat> I'm working on a short film right now because I have facilitated, I run an acting studio in Los Angeles with my partner, Steve, and we've, we're in our 10th year almost, and we've survived the pandemic and actually expanded our community into an international community. And we're doing classes on Zoom and it's, you know, it's fantastic. You can have really intimate conversations with people on Zoom and we have classes in person. But what I've been doing is facilitating work for other people for a really long time. And even as a casting director, you are facilitating someone else's vision. And so during the pandemic, during my sort of reckoning, I realized that I have to come back to the thing that started this in the first place that made me realize when I was 10 or when I was 16 directing the high school play when nobody had done it other than teachers before. And when I pursued 200 cigarettes, et cetera, et cetera, or I, you know, pursued my, my theater life, early 80s, that I have to come back to that because it's what makes me happy, yeah. you know? And even at this stage in my life and career, I'm sort of going back to the beginning. And it's great, you know? And it's like, there's no ego in it. It's just, I'm super happy to be going back to the thing I love and sort of starting over. So that's wonderful and inspiring. Yeah. Well, it's a lesson for all of us. We, yeah. we have to just keep, you know, keep coming back to that, that thing, that spark, the thing that fills up our tank. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have no idea how that helps us in just where we're at and what we're trying to accomplish. So we really and appreciate it. And I love that. what you're doing. I love what oh, you're doing. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Just keep doing it. You do because I really believe people who do really good work or do things that are meaningful to them and, and, and there's a purpose and a passion and a vision for it. Like that's the stuff that comes to the surface. You know, that's the stuff that's that that lands and survives and it makes you happy. Yeah, it does. You want to be happy, whatever else you have to do in your life to support yourself. And for me, you know, casting was my bartending job <laughs> to support my directing career. But it, there were parts of it. There are parts of it that I still love. Right. You know, but whatever well, you have to do to make to make that work. I always view the podcast as something I never say I have to do the podcast. I always say I get to do the podcast. Oh, I love and it. I get to do it with my best friend of 20 plus years and we just have fun together yeah. and it's it brings us so much joy and it's a ton of work but it is so rewarding just having interviews like this people who have influenced our lives and being able to reach out to other people that kind of fangirl over the same things that we do 20 years later and <laughs> it's just been an awesome experience I'm yeah. glad I'm glad. No, that's, that's great. That's great. Yeah. 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 So I think our last question for you is okay. just, if you want to tell us a little bit about any projects you're currently working on now, I know you did mention that you're making a short film. If you want to give us any 
details on anything else that you're working on, or even we'd love to hear a little bit more about your studio. Yeah, I cast a really wonderful pilot that didn't get picked up recently, but it was great. Um, And I loved it because I was working with really terrific collaborators and people I've known a really long time, you know, and it was really fun to be able to go to actors who I've known for a really long time to help populate this project. It just didn't quite land for some reason. Some of it was political. It was a political TV show and it, the climate just wasn't, has not been right for it. So unfortunately it didn't happen, which is what happens with pilots sometimes. And been really running the studio like I've been putting my heart and soul into that and and I I'm really happy doing that you know it's been amazing and 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 we've grown so much and we've been able as I mentioned survive the pandemic in creative and surprising ways and the work that happens in class not only in class but outside of class watching actors become filmmakers a lot of my actors have made films and we create work in class and it's been incredibly strong and exciting. I mean, to me, it's the strongest writer's room of anything I've ever seen, even the shows I've worked on. So that's been really cool. It's called the BGB studio. And as I said, we have classes online and in person. And so it surprised me. I didn't really think that was what was going to happen. You know, (laughs) I always thought, Oh, that's what, you know, you go teach because you can't do anything else or you retire into being a teacher. But I started doing this simultaneous to my other stuff about 20 years ago, I started because I saw actors auditioning with such trauma that I thought I've got to start teaching auditioning classes. And then I met Steve, I cast him in a few things. And then we had a like mindedness about how we approach the work. We formed this studio nine and a half years ago. It's kind of hard to imagine. And it kind of grew. And what I love is that we grew this thing out of nothing, which again, is something that I really believe anybody can do and i encourage people to you know follow their dreams their heart their passion their talent because that's for me that's the only thing that's ever worked you know and then people find you and they go oh you over there whatever you're doing let's have some of that so that that's been amazing and surprising and we put out a lot of stuff and people follow us on Instagram. It's really satisfying to know that during the last two years, during the pandemic, we were there for actors all over the world and were able to, and actors of all levels, actors who are just yeah. starting out, actors from all over the, the globe and, and, and actors who are, who were working a lot and were series regulars and, that, and then suddenly hit the wall of like the pandemic stopped their career. So it's been a, a range of people and to be able to, to, to offer that kind of support and build that community among actors um, and writers as well and and directors has been really, really gratifying. And as I mentioned, doing this short film, there's been a a glitch in the process in that the person I was collaborating with, yeah, he's a very, very good friend of mine. He's a playwright, Edward Allen Baker, who we worked together in the 80s in the theater in New York and did great work together. And his plays are being done in theaters and colleges all over the world consistently. And also people are making short films of his stuff and you know, blah, blah, blah. And then we reconnect, we we stayed friends. I'm godmother to one of his kids and I know his family really well. And I actually just got back last week from Connecticut where there was a family memorial service and I saw his whole family and close friends and it was really beautiful and moving, but he died and that was horrible. 
because yeah. we were having such a good time and we had reconnected in the work. Like we'd always been friends and he was like my brother and we were close for years, but we hadn't worked together in a long time, in decades. So that was horrible for many reasons, but also um, it stopped this film, but it didn't because a bunch of us are committed to making it anyway. Those people who have been, people we who I met in the early 80s, yeah. just around the time that 200 Cigarettes lived, which was, and it's interesting because I connect my work with Ed and my work in the theater with 200 Cigarettes. I mean, I did them that movie later, but it was about my life right. in 1981. And so that's when he and I started working together. And so anyway, we're making the film anyway, in honor of him. And in spite of those issues, we're doing a little work on this, on it, but we're going to make it anyway. So I'm committed to that and super excited about that because it's what I love and it's a great story and it's very different than 200 cigarettes in that it's gritty um, and it's, it's emotionally brutal, but it's something that I'm really committed to and passionate about. So, yeah. So that's what I'm working on at the moment and more to come. Yeah. Well, we're excited and we're going to keep an eye out so we can watch when it's out. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for being such fans of 200 cigarettes for sure, because, you know, it's, it's, it deserves a watch and it's a fun romp through New York. It so. does. It's just and it a, is. <laughs> it's, yeah. And it's, it's a landmark in our friendship. It's funny how movies can, can actually yeah. be pillars in, in your relationship. I think that's one of the great things about it. And then now it just feels like we've gone completely full circle in a, in our friendship with this <laughs> and you've just put the cherry on top of that with joining I'm us glad. today I'm yes. glad. my pleasure one if you'd like can you just share your social handles so that our listeners yep. could follow you I'm mostly on Instagram so it's at Risa BG R-I-S-A-B-G and at BGB studio BGB studio those are my Instagram I think that's what I am on Facebook and Twitter as well um and as I said, we post a lot of really cool inspirational stuff at the BG, at, at BGB Studio. So it's it's even if you're not um, an actor, if you're an artist at of any kind in your heart, we have a lot of great stuff to offer just to keep you grounded <laughs> and feel like you're you know in a community of like-minded travelers. I love that. That's wonderful. Well, it's been absolutely lovely. Thank you so much for taking your time out again. I've, sure. I I could sit and listen to you talk Forever. all day. I'm just like <laughs> enraptured. <laughs> all right. Well, my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. Well, if you have any questions for Risa or any feedback or comments, then you guys can reach out to her on her social platforms, or you can hit us up at No More Late Fees on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. And stay tuned for our regular scheduled programming. Thank you for hanging out with us. And as always, be kind and rewind.